This is John Steflin. This is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 82. With me from Japan, uh, where I think it's three in the morning, is Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Thank you for staying <laughs> up. Uh, Varun Mathur in India. Hi, Varun. Hello, hello. Uh, and it's late there, too, I believe. Yeah, really? It's uh, almost, almost midnight. Almost midnight. Wow. And uh, Johan Edebo uh, in Sweden. Are you back north? Sweden? Yeah, I'm back north. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and I am uh, doing this from, uh, from a cabin, and <laughs> I am hoping the, uh, the Wi-Fi uh, connection stays stable. It doesn't always down here, but um, there you have it. And Corey Morningstar will, will be joining us presumably soon. Uh, and, and I wanted to get into part two of, of, uh, of her slide presentation, those topics. Uh, hopefully it will get online soon and, and people can, can read more what we're talking about. Uh, but but there's there's a whole lot of uh, discussions. I, I want to start with because there was a, a a news story today or yesterday about a man who drove his car intentionally into a group of homeless people at a food not bombs uh, gathering. I guess <clears throat> people were queued up to get food and uh, it, they were the homeless now currently called the unhoused uh and i will make a sidebar comment about that this idea that if you if you change the the language for something they're not homeless they're unhoused <clears throat> that somehow they're less hungry you know uh it's 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 insulting in a way at a certain point and uh, anyway, he killed a couple of people, injured a couple. A woman had her back broken and is now paralyzed, I believe. Uh, it was a horrible, a horrible uh, story. And the man confessed readily and said he did it intentionally and he was sick of all these homeless people and had to clean up the country and et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And it struck me that because we have talked about homelessness on this podcast a number of times, it struck me that because it has become such a massive problem, and it is indeed a, a health problem, it's unsanitary, you can't have hundreds of thousands of people in big cities in Los Angeles, in Oakland, San Francisco, in Boston, in Vancouver, in Seattle, across the country, North America, the United States and Canada, massive homeless encampments in Orange County, in California, near Angel Stadium, the baseball stadium, Anaheim Stadium. There are literally miles of camps <clears throat> that run along the, the what they call the river that's really just a, a cement uh, trough, uh, spillage, drain, 
uh, emergency drain uh, trough or something. And, and <clears throat> it is a problem. And it is, you go to downtown Los Angeles, there is just unimaginable suffering and, and, and it is dirty and it smells. <clears throat> There's a huge percentage of people with mental health issues. That has increased. Uh, I know that a very, there's a very high percentage of, of veterans who have found themselves homeless. They suffer PTSD. Uh, I have talked to people who work with them. The government offers scant assistance. They offer almost no money. And there was a second story today about the huge encampment in Vancouver that was being cleaned up. They were shutting it down. They were carting away everybody's belongings, breaking it up and sending people elsewhere. When the authorities were questioned about where they were being sent, where do you expect these people to go? The cops said, we don't know. There really is no place for them to go, but we have our orders and we're going to clean up the camp. Nobody's arguing that, that that these camps are, are sanitary or healthy, that they don't present uh, potential health problems. They do. You're going to get diseases of insanitation. You're going to get outbreaks of cholera and typhus, whatever. That's already happened. And, uh, but the solution hmm. is, is, to, is to further dehumanize these people, break up the camps, uh render these however many people uh a great many a thousand perhaps in that vancouver encampment render them more vulnerable uh and 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 expect something will improve somehow i sat back I, this is the topic i'm introducing long-winded introduction, I realized, but I thought there are ways to at least fix this a little bit. There are at least humane band-aids to put on this problem. You needn't dehumanize people, in, you know, in, in <clears throat> insult them and treat them as criminals in this kind of degrading, uh, insulting process, throwing away the few belongings they have, carting off their stuff in dump trucks. Uh, there are ways to do it. There's obviously also housing available, but it's private housing. There are thousands of empty uh, apartments with absentee landlords. There's massive amounts of square footage of empty office buildings in all of these cities, but they're not used. And it struck me that my punchline to all of this is I, I, people, Americans have always hated the poor anyway. They are threatened by them. It's a mirror they don't want to look at. They know they are one or two steps away from that themselves. So, it, if fascism, if full-blown, full-tilt fascism comes to America, if we assume it's not already there in some form, 
it's going to be triggered by the homelessness uh, question, the homelessness situation, because there are the bourgeoisie wants to punish the homeless anyway. They don't like the sight of the homeless. They're threatened by the homeless. It's it's on all kinds of levels. Uh, uh, something they find intolerable and they are going to applaud any kind of measure that cleans it up regardless of what those methods are. Okay, Johan and then Maroon. Hi, Corey. Hi. Hey, Corey. Hi, guys. Yeah, and, and I think this is, a, this is a remarkable, very telling phenomenon that this actively murdering, murdering the homeless uh, similar situation in Sweden where they poisoned um, food thrown out in dumpsters because, well, the homeless people could supposedly go eat that and we, um, we should then poison, poison them. But I mean, this goes way back to, to Max Weber's notion of, of, you know, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, this moral culpability of, of the homeless, of those who do not work, <clears throat> no, or those who are in poverty. So, so it's interesting to note, you know, that basically every other culture and, and religious tradition has protected or somehow valued the poor in, in certain ways. With the post-16th century West as maybe the, the only exception throughout history, when wealth, you know, step by step becomes a measure of virtue, also in a moral sense. And, and it, it's a good example is how certain Protestant sects from the 1600s and onwards finally considered donation of money to the poor or to charity as something something morally evil because it furthers this social condition of, of laziness and it, it supports the how will these vices these choices so, so it's basically the, the neoliberal ideologies uh, roots coming to the fore here in a sense when when we go out, go out there and, and we, we kill the homeless for being parasites yeah yeah, no. Uh, Varun? Yeah, I've got a glaring example of how, I mean, what Johan is saying is very interesting also, I'll connect it to that, in the sense that there is all the religions that function in India have this sort of responsibility towards the poor in some way. So there will always be these kind of setups of donation or some individual families who help out the poor in some areas and so on and so forth. But when India hosted, right, New Delhi hosted the Commonwealth Games, the district's entire slums of multiple thousands of people were relocated. So that, or, or there were boards as high as 25 feet put up on the highways so that the dignitaries who were coming from abroad and the sports people would not be able to see how poor mm. people were actually living. And then I mean, the establishment has a track record of actually going without warning with bulldozers and just demolishing houses. Yeah. So there is, so that's that's a very strange mix of uh. the image that has to be presented versus what the reality actually is. And that is, I think, a really good example of how neoliberal ideology itself works is that there is only the advertising and behind that it's all just hollow and it's abuse and it's slavery and yeah. all of that, right? Like, so it's very interesting like that, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, it, it is very telling 
the the treatment uh, of the poor, the homeless. The homeless situation is so acute now in North America and and in Canada, U.S. So acute and has gone on now for a very long time. This is not something that just happened with the pandemic. The pandemic and the lockdowns intensified the problem. The authorities stopped the people who, there are various organizations that volunteer food and bring it to the streets. They were not able to do that. People were much hungrier uh, and, and had less help. and, and during the lockdowns had zero medical assistance because that was forbidden as well. It's, it's, it's connected though, because Johan mentioned the 1600s, 1700s, Varun mentions the, the <clears throat> perspective that the society has, the culture has in India on, on the poor, on poverty. Christianity is supposed to uh, take take some kind of responsibility for for the impoverished, the vulnerable. But in the U.S., that has never been the case, and it is connected somehow to this idea of progress and yeah, yeah. and and the rise of capitalism, the idea that industry, if one was industrious personal industry was a virtue and it this became manifest destiny it it was extrapolated outward that fallow land land that was not being made valuable productive pro, if if the land did not produce then it was okay for somebody to go in and take the land if their intention was to make yeah. it productive land this is, you know, is capitalism. And God, I've had these conversations on social media this week, a couple of them, because I don't get in many conversations anymore. I stop myself hmm. uh, with people arguing the reformist position that capitalism just needs to be reformed. I think it was on CJ Hopkins thread. Uh, and there's the invariable conflation of fascism and communism that goes along with this the new world order is we're going to have this horrible global communism and uh that that capitalism they call it casino capitalism or crony capitalism or there's a dozen names it's not real capitalism because presumably in these people's minds there is some pristine form of capitalism in which the system doesn't manufacture poverty and suffering, which of course it does. That's the nature of it. It's based on that. Um, Hiroyuki? Um, well, this, um, uh, it, um, just like anything else, it's kind of hard to talk about this because uh, the, the, the way uh, how things go with capitalism is, is, is that, uh, uh, well, if, if it's fascism, you know, they, they will, just put people in camps 
or uh, come up with a regulation saying that if you do this, you're going to be uh, executed, you're going to be um, whatever. Um, but with capitalism, what they're doing is uh, they create crisis, and uh, the crisis would give opportunities to the um, uh, capitalists to implement solutions that are uh, going along with uh, their policies. So when they talk about um, uh, uh, homeless people programs, uh, we would expect solutions come in. And uh, um, what kind of solutions are they talking about? They're probably talking about um, uh, draconian measures to contain people or, or house people in uh, some kind of camp situation, uh, whatever. But if you start talking about all this, you're a conspiracy theorist, mm. and, <laughs> and wow. um, uh, it's it's uh, it's a uh, difficult situation, and it, it's it it has to do with the very nature of uh, capitalist structure that needs to mobilize people, and so that you know the authority can blame people. Um, um, so. I yeah, you know, you I, can't even talk about this without uh, unpacking all the structural problems. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, we are part of the uh, uh, the mechanism. You know, there 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 are homeless people there. You know, this is horrible. You know, whatever the reason is, the solution is going to be coming. You know, I um, I just quick thing, and then Corey, I'll go to Corey. What I suspect is going to happen. This is my prediction. This is the reason I brought up the story that that the there will be some kind of government action to 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 put the homeless in camps and some sort of restrictive housing of some sort mm -hmm. and i mean this is this is was the birth of i mean anybody who's read foucault knows all this you know the mm -hmm. birth of the hospital in, in the healthcare system in england a model of prisons and on and on but the homeless are going to be given id they're going to be monitored they'll probably be chipped and they will have to they will have to follow certain rules, get their food in certain places, get their vaccination in certain places, or their, their chip will get a little red mark. And eventually, if you get too many red marks, you'll be sent to, to uh, you'll be incarcerated officially in, a, in some sort of prison or uh, penitentiary. And, and uh, that's, the the pandemic did this the lockdowns began the normalizing process for this i suspect the treatment the eventual action that will be the government action taken vis-a-vis -vis the homeless will be the second stage in this normalizing uh, that will be coming for everybody and the point is that the bourgeoisie will applaud all of this they will applaud it because it's it's doing something and it's getting an offensive site uh, off their streets and they don't have to look at it or think about it or deal with it. Corey? Oh, hi, guys, I'm sorry I'm late. Um, so I first of all wanted to touch upon just when we were discussing um, Hawkins' latest piece this week, I thought Vroon had some good things to say on that and he is basically 
I went back to our discussion and he is just talking about how um, it's quite typical, the comments on that piece that you were noticing, John. And he yes. states, because it was seen the general direction always is holding people at the top accountable, but keeping the system intact. It's sort of this wall people cannot get through because I suspect in their minds there is and could be nothing else. That's the cognitive map idea. I mean, the breakdown of the system is also the breakdown of the individual worldview, a total reformatting of the psyche. Not easy to imagine, I think, for most people, a new way of living. There are just two options, liberal economy or the jungle completely off grid with the survivalist kind of living. Um, so I thought that was just interesting that, you know, it's always about that he's right, um, Bruin's right. It's always about, you know, pretending that those at the top can't be held accountable somehow. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, always keeping the system intact, you know, and um, I think it's interesting, especially the Stokely Carmichael speech that I always go back to. I forget what year. Um, I think he was at Berkeley and he, he was talking, you know, about the role of white people and it was to help break down these institutions, dismantle these institutions, you know, that oppress and, and um, we haven't done that. I mean, it's the opposite. Like Brian says, we over and over trying to keep the system intact, but for who and what for? You know, and, and again, you know, like we've said so many times on this podcast, if it's so great, why is everyone medicated? Why is yeah. everyone on <laughs> antidepressants? Why is everyone depressed? You know what I mean? And then well, back, to, back to the homeless thing. I mean, this is just a massive, huge growing problem in Canada by the week, right? And it goes hand in, you know, a lot of it as well, opioid addiction, um, homelessness, um, it, it's crazy here where I lived last week, I, I went to a store and now all the stores are on the street downtown are actually keeping their doors locked. You have to not to go into the store. Um, someone waiting for the train, um, someone opened their door and started stabbing him. It's becoming, it's becoming really, really crazy how many people yeah. are on the street yeah. and it's only going to get worse because the apartments now are absolutely unaffordable. I mean, it, it's just, um, it's like- Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about that. Uh, let, that was this topic I, I wanted to touch on without maybe getting too deeply into it, but you were giving some examples of prices in Canada and those are reflected in the US. I mean, the housing market, I know Los Angeles better than most places, but it seems to be true pretty much everywhere. Uh, housing is unaffordable. It, it's impossible. And uh, to rent is, is not just exorbitant in terms of price. You have to jump through so many hoops. They do background checks. You, you know, they ask you for um, character references and previous employment and I never had previous employment I was always had been living somewhere else uh and and uh didn't you know I would say yeah I've been in I've been in Europe for 10 years so I can't I can't I don't have any pre oh well I'm sorry that's that you, you right away go to the bottom of the list so it's 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 people 
begging to pay these exorbitant prices for these terrible, tiny, little, shitty Ooh. apartments. It's extraordinary what has, this is over the last 40 years, the changes have been just profound. Um, but anyway, Corey, yeah, if you wanted to touch on that a little more. But just on the cost of apartments? Yeah, yeah. Thing? Yeah. So, um, I mean, where I am, I think it's more, well, it is more in Toronto and Vancouver, but basically apartments have gone from a couple years ago, you know, you could find a really good place for, you know, 850 all inclusive. That would give you two bedroom, really nice place. Now it's up to, let's see, about 15 months ago, that became about 1350, 1400 for the same. And now that's up to 1800 in Toronto, probably 2600. For a tiny little bachelor um barely you know not even yeah, decent yeah. assistance for people is around a thousand dollars you know for everything so it's just an impossible situation um, right which is why more and more people live out of their cars absolutely you know, and and now speed. you're yeah yeah i mean now you have families that are going to be living that are living on the street right and, and moms and and like it's just i mean this is going to implode this is not going to get better this is getting worse really really fast and yeah. um you know again causing more division more strife because you've got this huge problem i mean for instance a couple a few years ago now um there was a syrian family that came here and the little girl she was around maybe 10 12 she had never seen homelessness before um, there's no people in Syria on the street ever, you know, her childhood growing up. And so that was a completely foreign concept to her. And she asked, why is that person on the street? Like, what are they doing there? And, um, you know, trying to wrap her head around this. And meanwhile, here, everyone's become completely, you know, um, conditioned that that's a normal thing. In the past year, I'd say it's becoming more and more normal. When I went downtown a few days ago, there was just casual conversation. Oh yeah, I think there is someone dead again down there on the street this morning. It's become normal. People are dead on the yeah. street downtown, yeah. right? Someone's got to come and pick them up. They're like literally dead on the street. I mean, this is what kind of a society is this where we have people dying on our streets? Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, I mean, wow. Yeah, and, no, and, it's, it, 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 it's, and, and it has become commonplace. I know last time I was in Los Angeles, and it, I'm not blaming anybody for this. It, I saw it happening with me to some degree. Because there are homeless everywhere, you just step over them. You know, there's a guy sleeping on right on next to my car. Let me just step. I don't want to step on him. You know, because you, there's two, you can't help everybody. What do you do? I, it, it's and and there is a danger level with some of it. There's certainly a lack of uh, sanitation uh, with all of it. It's going to get worse. It has gotten far worse than I imagined possible a few years ago. It is now at at and yet I don't see very much in the media, mainstream media. I I don't see very much. Um, Johan, did you? Yeah, I just want to. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just want to go back and touch on something you said a bit earlier because I think it's really interesting to note that this this prosperity theology and, and the, the scapegoating of poverty at the roots of all this, that it's closely affiliated to, to what I would call the contemporary secular religion of progress. And, and as you suggested, if we do some Foucauldian genealogy, we, we can see how this, this old Reformation notion of how God, God supposedly rewards virtue through material gains is then extrapolated to the, the entire civilization as a whole and then simply gets secularized so that progress, whatever that means, becomes an end unto itself. And th this overarching value of, of progress that factors into the pathologization of the abnormal, of, of whatever yeah. somehow comes in the way of progress in terms of its spiritual value. And then as you observe, Corey, there, there are only two options. There are like progress or the jungle, according to this inevitable dichotomy that follows from, from progress being a moral value. So, so you, you can't think about no growth, steady state, socialism, or, or distributism, or anything like that. There was a photograph in, I think, The Guardian <clears throat> a couple of days ago, and John White, who is a sort of a friend of mine, a uh, Scottish journalist, leftist, uh, there was a photograph of King Charles and the Queen Consort, whatever the fuck they call her, uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, uh, sitting in on the porch of their cottage. One doesn't know quite how big this cottage is. It was owned by the Queen Mother originally. And there they are with their little ugly dogs sitting in their commoners kind of clothes. And they referred to it, Camilla referred to this lodge where they as their happy place. This is Charles and my happy place. <laughs> and John White just wrote, this is a provocation. And I thought, yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's it's just insulting. What you know, what where like Corey just said, what kind of society tolerates this level of inequality, this indifference? To, to poverty, the, the level of wealth in the hands of a few people and newspapers do puff pieces on their happy place. You know, you wonder what I, it's moments like this where I think what we need is a good reign of terror. You know, uh, I understand it. I understand, I understand the rage that people feel. Uh, Varun? I think what the the point that uh, Johan was making about um, spiritual morality, and what you've just mentioned about this this happiness idea, I think because the point was that in in the global south, as it is termed, or what are called developing countries, the idea of the West is sold as the happy place right and that, <laughs> yeah. it's the it's the i mean and that's what i mean that's so interesting because you will never see or hear news about homeless people in los angeles or toronto in india ever right you right. will never yeah. hear that and yeah. that's i think a really good tactic of empire in that sense to hook aspirations towards a very specific ideology to pull it's like a magnet that's pulling people towards that kind of lifestyle that they are trying to sell while 
where they are based, where they are based out of, is suffering exactly the same kind of problems that the rest of the world is facing, which is very interesting to me. Yeah, it's that's really telling. I just I, I, before we finish off, I, or I kind of want to segue to something that is related. I think let me put it that way, uh, because I, I, you know, I watch bad television. I, I sample bad television all the time. There was a new show this year. <clears throat> Scott Kahn, James Kahn's son, stars in it. I guess he had been in some previous NCIS, you know, Des Moines or whatever the hell it was. So he has a new show called Alert, Missing Persons. I think that's the full title. And he plays a cop, of course, that that is in charge of a unit that goes after children or people who are abducted or go missing. Now, what's interesting is the, the, the format is one that there's a, new, there's a new abductee every week. And when they identify, they, the police identify the abductee, they send out the alert. And it's on an app that I guess millions of people in this fantasy world have on their smartphones. So there is a moment in every episode in which they go, did you send out the alert? Little Jimmy has been abducted. And you hear boing, 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 buzz, buzz. And then there's a montage of countless people hearing their phone vibrate, taking it out of their pocket and looking at the alert with a photograph of the missing person. And they nod to themselves and each other and they start looking around wherever they are on the street for suspicious people. <laughs> this is so Orwellian. Oh. Now, interestingly, this, the subplot, the B story for the, the arc of the whole first season was that Scott Kahn and his wife, and they're separated now, uh, their son was abducted. That's why he was drawn to this, this unit of the police. His son was abducted, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, 12 years ago. And they think now in episode two of the season, they had found him again, but he's now like 17 years old. He's not six. And everything points to it being their son, but, but the sister is not sure. Now that, that semi-doubt runs through the whole series and I won't, you know, no spoilers here. I'll let you find out for yourselves. But what struck me was they couldn't decide if this was their son or not. Now, I'm sorry, my sons were taken, God forbid, and kept away for 12 years. I would know them when I saw them. Any sane parent would know them. Mm. I'm sorry, that's absolute. And it speaks to something hugely dysfunctional uh, in, the, in the, a society that churns out this stuff where it's normal for parents to not recognize their kids. Third C story is that the tech, the forensic tech in the show has a budding romance with this girl, but he's very shy. And finally in the, in the penultimate episode, 
he says, yeah, I, I do like you. I'm just very shy. I've had bad experiences. And she goes, oh, don't be silly. I've been waiting for you to ask me out. He goes, but I have to tell you something. I'm a trans man. That was the punchline. And she's like, I don't care if you were, I guess, once one. You know, so every woke, every woke thing on the menu was was ticked off. It's a very strange and disturbing show to watch. Final comment is I have noticed something else in television and popular culture running through shows that mostly crime shows, cop shows, espionage shows, court shows, in which the home life of the protagonist I can think of one example, the rookie with what's his name, that guy who's in a million shows. Uh, they're off hours. They go, oh, what do you want to do tonight, honey? Let's sit home and have popcorn and watch some TV. I'm ready to binge on The Bachelorette. Mm -hmm. This is this macho cop character talking. And that's very interesting. Ponder that, Grasshopper. Johan. Yeah, so uh, Hiroyuki mentioned these, uh, this synthetic crisis of capitalism in the, in the background of all of this, both what we talked about, and I, I think it's relevant to what you're saying right now. So just a side note uh, on this, uh, OPEC now announces production cuts, which uh, push the oil price back up to the mid 80s. And th this is certainly going to exacerbate inflation especially in relation to China's reopening. And um, the, the decision to cut is, is quite odd here because the European and US economies are going to take a hit and the banks, the central banks will be forced to hike rates and <clears throat> the, the financial system will probably take another really good punch. It's strange that they choose to do this now. Uh, and crises, as we know, are, are constantly being manufactured to, to create opportunities for, for profit. And as, as, per, as per De Boer, I think we need to realize that this is taking place constantly at the cultural level as well. Cultural conflicts, political conflicts are constantly being introduced to maintain society in, in this profitable state of, of agitation, tension. And I, I think that's, yeah, we need to think about that. That's a, yeah, that's kind of brilliant observation actually, and very much to the point here. Uh, we can, I, I was on press TV this week discussing Finland joining NATO, so I wanted to introduce that as a topic, because we are seeing the massive protests in Paris and in France continue, they are, they are getting more uh, unruly and violent in places. In some cities, the police and firefighters have joined the protesters, and Macron does nothing. You know, he takes his wristwatch off on television because he realizes it's a two hundred thousand dollar patek and that might give the wrong signal to the audience. These are all provocations by the ruling class. And and as threadbare and tired the Zelensky Ukraine story is, I see it every day. I I it's you know, ubiquitous. And 
So now we have Finland with its 1800 kilometer border with Russia, uh, eagerly welcoming in NATO and the military infrastructure will be pushed right up to the Russian border. <clears throat> and, and Ursula van der Leyen gave yet another speech uh, and she is being uh, targeted uh, as the next head of NATO, actually, I heard when Stoltenberg steps down. Uh, I just mentioned this because it's interesting. Sweden is supposedly going to be next. Johan, you can talk about that. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and I, I, it's, it's very hard to get a reading on public opinion, but I don't think that, that people are particularly happy about this in the EU. I think there is an enormous fatigue and, and, and prices have become intolerable. Uh, prices for heating and, and food now are, are at all time highs, just unimaginably high. And it, there seems no end in sight for any of this. And I wanted to segue from that into that poll that we talked about, Corey, Johan, Varun, Hiroyuki, all this uh, that was on our thread talking among ourselves that um, uh, the, the poll that was conducted in the United States about people's, what they valued. I'm trying to find it now. Maybe- I have it open, John. Okay, I, yeah, I go ahead. Take over, take over. Well, patriotism took a huge decline, religion, huge decline. Um, one of the biggest massive drop-offs was community involvement, having children decline. The only thing that's gone up in value for a value um, is money. Um, and it's just like basically um, a huge warning sign that societal values are collapsing. Uh, maybe Johan wants to speak to that. I mean, they need social license to um, continue. And without it, you know, we see what's happening, like you said, in France. And um, billionaires <laughs> talk about this stuff and notice it. And this is um, not voting well for them. It's actually a poll by the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was extraordinarily interesting poll and surprising in a way. Uh, <coughs> That the fact that people don't want to have children, they don't value community relationships. They, it, it's uh, a dramatic change in in values if if we are to trust this poll. Johan, do you want to? Sure. Yeah, I can't really add very much, but as as I've been mentioning a couple of times on the pod, <clears throat> we've had this this crisis of institutional legitimacy for maybe like 15 to 20 years, uh, a drop in the trust in established institutions like the media, the, the, the science, the universities, political institutions and so on. And yeah. this poll shows us these basic cohesive values are, are collapsing very rapidly since 2020. So the values necessary to keep institutions stable are dropping. And I mean, if you if you look at history, when this reaches a breaking point, you you generally get this this huge generational crisis often war. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at at the poll here. Uh, it, it is it was on uh, the Wall Street Journal. Paul Steigen's blog 
uh, is where I first saw it. I'll just read you a little here. From 1998 until today, the percentage of Americans who say patriotism is an important value has crashed from 70% to 38%. Most of this fall occurred after 2019. 38% of respondents said patriotism was important. 39% said religion was important. Both are sharp declines from when the Wall Street Journal first asked the question in 1998. Um, going on, uh, and this is even more important. The proportion of Americans who say that having children, community involvement, and hard work our very important values has also fallen. Tolerance mm. of others considered very important by 80% of Americans as recently as four years ago has fallen to 58%. Bill McInturf, a pollster who worked on an earlier journal survey that measured these attitudes with NBC News said these differences are so dramatic that they paint a new and surprising portrait of changing America. Uh, and then it talks about the effect of the lockdowns, possibly, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't have to go over any more of the details. Uh, I think that, that the idea of patriotism, okay, fine. That's, that's always a, a fluid and volatile topic in the US, but community involvement, having children, tolerance of others, these are things that have crashed. They're way under 50% now say this is important. So that's like 60, 70% of the populace have no interest in tolerating people they don't like. They have no interest in their community and they have have no interest apparently in um, in having families themselves. Uh, and that's why we see plummeting birth rates, one of the several reasons. Varun? Yeah, I, I mean, it also sounds like a retrofitting argument to what they've actually done in the last three years, which is demoralize and depopulate the world. So they're trying to justify it by printing mm -hmm. these stats in one way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, in yeah. the other way, I mean, if you had to take it literally, that let's say that what, what the Wall Street Journal is printing is true, then the plan of the establishment has worked to say that there's going to be a decimation of society at its core levels and its core value systems so that everybody is completely dependent on the establishment for survival. And that's, I mean, on both ways, I think it's working perfectly for them, which is really frightening. Yeah, that's, I think, a very good point. Uh, clearly, I mean, this, this raises, a, again, a discussion about government reaction to the alleged pandemic, the idea of lockdowns, which was so absurd from day one, all of us pointed out the absurdity of this, that, that it was counterfactual, counterintuitive, unprecedented, made no sense even by on the terms of, of the World Health Organization or CDC, even by their own logic, it made no sense. And yet they, they enforced it, they, the government enforced it rigidly and, and 
the EU followed suit and on and on. We know this whole story. Uh, it's very interesting uh, what, what got normalized and introduced and normalized and validated over the last four years. It's, it's mm. very interesting. Corey? I just wanted to read something about what we're talking about. Um, okay, so this is out of one of my acts of the Greta series. So, and this is about the whole together campaign. So at the heart of the new focus on inequality represents something far more important than eradicating poverty and distributing wealth equally amongst rural citizens. Rather, the real crisis is the growing fear um, of billionaires that capitalism could collapse to a citizenry no longer willing to be compliant. The UN divulges that in 2018, 79% of Latin Americans said their countries were governed in the interest of the powerful, the highest number since 2004. The statistic is derived from the April 5th, 2019 report, Ruling for the Few, How Weak Legitimacy Can Hinder Compliance and Cooperation in Lat Countries, written by Louis Felipe, or sorry, Felipe, Felipe, I can't say this, Lopez Calva, UN Assistant <laughs> Secretary General and UNDP Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean. And then this is from the report. The increasingly widespread belief that countries are governed to benefit quote unquote, the few rather than quote unquote, the many, suggests that the legitimacy of institutions may be declining in the region. Voluntary compliance is a key enabler of, of cooperation and coordination, and thus ultimately an important foundation of positive governance development dynamics, as explained by, by Margaret Levy. Citizens are willing to go along with a policy they do not prefer, as long as it is made according to a process they deem legitimate. And they are less willing to comply with a policy they like if the process was problematic. One widely used measure willingness of citizens to cooperate is tax morale. In the graph, the share of people responding greater than five is shown as those that think it is justifiable to evade taxes. What we see is that while a majority of citizens in all countries manifest disagreement with the idea of evading taxes, there is a clear and positive relationship between the share of people who think their countries govern in the interests of a few powerful groups and the share who thinks it is justifiable to evade taxes. The citizens do not believe that institutions are responsive to the needs of all, they may choose not to cooperate. We think of this as opting out of the social contract. And it just goes on, I'm just going on um, trying to get across the point that it really matters. Like the social license is everything. Um, once the, yeah. they no longer have the social license, everything literally falls apart. Um, <clears throat> no, that's very, this, we've talked about this. It's, it's, it is extraordinarily interesting. and. And as Johan said a minute ago, we see that the cultural crises introduced, artificial synthetic cultural crises introduced as well. The, the endless assault of propaganda, uh, we could talk about the Russophobia that you read in papers and, and uh, in, in electronic media, and we were discussing, somebody asked, what's going to happen when Russia finally achieves mm -hmm. its goals in the not distant future? They're wrapping up this whole thing, not what you read in the Western media, but they have 
rather deftly achieved their goals and quietly done so. And the question was posed, what will the United States do? And my answer was, they will claim they won. The mm. US doesn't ultimately care. They can lose the war. They'll claim on some level, mistakes were made, but we achieved our goal. Uh, they said this as they left Afghanistan. They said it with Iraq. They said, they just spin. It's the spin world. And it, it goes on constantly. I think, you know, the bigger issue is uh, the economic stability of the United States at this point, de-dollarization, what that's going to mean, I don't know, but it's, it's afoot as, I mean, it's inevitable, imminent. Um, Hiroyuki. But the, the, uh, the aim of, the Ukraine conflict probably isn't the uh, um, mm. winning, right? Um, the, I mean, Ukraine is a uh, neighboring kind of co- country of Russia, very, very important uh, neighbor. And uh, now the ties severed and uh, resources are um, um, shipped to uh, the West. And um, uh, um the more russians um um uh, do things to ukraine uh, the the ukraine's going to be uh weakened as a country that's um uh as an a, a possible ally to russia so um in a way uh they are achieving the goal right yeah, I mean, I, this is this is a this is a this is a fascinating topic. Uh, I mean, Russia would, you know. Yes, I mean, yes. On I know what you're saying, and yes, on one level, yes, uh, there was no lose imaginable for the United States. Everything, one way or another, they achieved their goals. Yes. Right. And also the same with the uh, the homeless situation. I mean, this is, you know, all this, uh, 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 the, all the divisions among the people, uh, the poverty, um, 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 uh, hunger and all that, uh, all these things are the breeding ground for the uh, uh, public, par- uh, public-private uh, partnership uh, under the uh, yeah, uh, sure. policies of SDGs. And, uh, you know, so it's like, um, they're on, on the way to um, achieving all these. And uh, I, I mean, if we don't frame it that way, you know? Yeah, no. And, and as many people point out, the ultimate goal on one level, because I think there's multiple registers of meaning here, if we're talking about the US government and society, the ultimate target is China. And I kind of buy right. that. But, uh, and we're seeing an uptick in, in uh, anti-Chinese uh, rhetoric in the papers, anti-Chinese propaganda, demonizing of China. Um, you, can, you can clock it uh, in, in Hollywood, it just, just absolutely predictable. And and so yeah, I don't know though. I mean, I I don't know. I there are so many moving parts in a mm. sense, because we have de-dollarization, 
the U.S. does not want that, uh, but it's happening. And uh, yes, NATO is expanding. They unloaded all this weaponry. They have justified the defense budget growing. All of these things have to be seen under the shadow of the pandemic and what took place there, the consolidation of retail, the, the introduction of all these crazy global health government, governance ideas, all of this, it's, it's complicated. Um, Varun and then Johan? Yeah, I, like you were saying before that even if they do lose this war, they're gonna pretend like they didn't lose. I think they will convert mm -hmm. I, will, I think they will convert it into intangible cultural capital so that right. the profit can still come, right? Like in the sense that the movies, the music, the propaganda, all of that will still continue. And I mean, the idea of NATO expanding eastwards has been an old idea, I think, about 15 years, 20 yeah. years already in the making. But the cultural capital profiteering has continued nonstop. Like that's a war that nobody really in the sense that there's not enough weight given to that kind of war, the psychological indoctrination that happens while yeah, yeah. all of this is going on continuously, right? Like this kind of, like you were saying, like your example of the TV shows and this kind of demoralization of the public, that's a continued effort where war then becomes possible wherever they want it, essentially. Yeah, yeah, um, yes. Uh, Johan. Mm. It just seems uh, pertinent to mention that uh, we, we saw just a few hours ago Israeli attacks on, on Lebanon and in, in Gaza. Uh, and uh, surprisingly, I saw in the Swedish mainstream media that the article's lead quoted Russian officials calling for de-escalation, saying that the, the situation was um, very worrying. So these nasty <laughs> getting some slack for some reason. Apparently, it, it's the worst situation in relation to Israel since 2006, and it began with Israel attacking the Al-Aqsa Mosque in, in the middle of Ramadan, assaulting and, and, and rounding up worshippers and I have. What do you make of this? Why, why would they do this at this moment? This is, it, it strikes me as very much like if whenever you watch the IDF, which is like a settler militia now, go in and destroy a Palestinian village and uproot thousand year old olive trees. And mm. you see old men weeping who have been there their entire lives and cared for those trees. That level of humiliation and, and mm. dehumanization is what you see in homeless camps when they, when they on a milder level perhaps, when they take up everybody's belongings and throw them in a dumpster, a dump truck and cart them away. It's, 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 that's to me is what fascism is. That's that impulse. I mean, George Jackson talked about that. Uh, and and it, it's what cost him his life, of course. But uh, the US leads the world. I. I'm always ready to point out leads the world per capita and in real numbers for number for, for people incarcerated. There are more people and a higher percentage of people in jail in the United States than anywhere in the world. And that has been true for many decades. And 
there are people kept in solitary confinement in the United States for longer, for less reasons, with less appeal and oversight than anywhere in the world. People have some idea that, oh, you don't want to go to prison in Turkey. That would be horrible. <clears throat> no, where you don't want to go to prison is Florida and Texas. Um, whoever, uh, Johan? Yeah, no, I, I had nothing at the okay. moment. <laughs> okay, I have too many yellow hands. Hiroyuki. Well, I was away, just uh, which is amazing. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's it's getting to me a little bit, but uh, <laughs> well, um, about the uh, Israeli violence, uh, I, I think we we should keep in mind that that's that's the basic uh, mechanism uh, of the uh, imperialism. Israel would take on the uh, the role of um, um, being the bad guy. And um, um, it, it will be blamed for things, but they can uh, launder that thing as uh, saying that you're anti-Semites. So uh, this, you know, um, um, this happens in many other places in the world. Um, the the pro proxy powers would take on the role of the uh, violent violent um, uh, executioners. And and then the U.S. would come in saying that, oh, you guys, what are you guys doing? You shouldn't be doing that. You know, we're going to, you know, show yeah. you, the, you know, it's the same with the, uh, the homeless situation. You know, uh, the towns would do this or that. And then uh, the big authority is going to come in with a big uh, public private partnership program, something to financialize the pain. So you know it's uh yeah, yeah. well i i think that i think that western society is increasingly resembles the hunger games you know that the the opening 30 minutes of of hunger games mm -hmm. that that's america today uh uh it, it, you look at all the woke agendas all the distractions uh drag queen reading kid book hour at the library, uh, women's sports being infiltrated. I mean, the mocking and the of women, the misogyny of all of that, that whole agenda is, is, uh, is there's a backlash, but it's, uh, that has, that's so predictable. People have to, there has to be an awareness of that. It does a disservice to the the few people that actually um, uh, have some kind of gender dysmorphia. But but this this is this is about a hatred and fear of women. I mean, Sylvia Federici uh, is worth reading on um, witch burning. I think in light of all of this. Okay, uh, Varun. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just see hands up, man. I, you know, I call you. So. Sorry. <laughs> that was <laughs> before. See, it's but, late uh, everywhere. Everybody's very tired. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we we're, <laughs> You know, I, I was just going to comment that the, uh, I was just watching a, a TV show from Korea and, um, um, and um, um, so there, uh, what's the story? Um, it's a, a story about uh, revenge, 
the, the name of the show is the Glo glory and um, um, it's basically a kid gets uh, abused and uh, uh, she plans schemes of revenge and uh, it you know things unfold but the the little thing they put in is that the um, uh, a child who's in danger of attack by these bad guys um, she will be sent to America uh, <laughs> to study and uh, so you know it's <laughs> this, sanitizing yeah. you know bit is to the you know it's, it's of there downtown you know it's... los angeles i have to tell you apropos of i forgot another detail in that missing persons alert program just a, a short scene and i had to rewind it to make sure i heard it correctly uh they they're trying to find this cabin in the woods and it's very complicated so they go to this guy who has all these drones because he runs a drone company and does surveillance. And they ask him, well, can you, can you find this? I mean, you have like 200 drones, right? He goes, yeah, I can do it. We just have to tape a cam, uh, a phone to the drone because it'll pick up the signal that way, blah, blah, blah. And Scott Kahn mm -hmm. is talking to the woman officer who looks very skeptical. He says, no, no, this guy's a genius. He, he did a special show for my son, my, my cousin's bar mitzvah, uh, where he had 200 drones and they, he did a show recreating the six day war. It was great. And I went, what the fuck <laughs> did I just hear? And I rewound it and yeah, so, Islamophobia is alive and well. It's just the 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 hot bourgeoisie, the white supremacist bourgeoisie in America is just intolerable these days. Okay, well let's get to final thoughts. I think it's getting late everywhere. <laughs> it's even getting late in a chilly Norway here. Um, Johan. I just have a short reflection on on something both you and, and Hiroyuki talked about here. I, I think I've mentioned it before, but uh, Jacques Ellul, uh, he has this notion of, of sensibilization to propaganda. So, so the idea is that the more you're, you're, you're submerged in propaganda, the more sensitive you are to propaganda as actualizing these deeply held symbolic convictions, the myths and stuff. But not to the content. You, you tend to forget the content. You don't need the content anymore. You just need these triggers to, to awaken the, the myth. And in, in my in my visit to Tokyo, uh, it would be would have been fun if both I and Hiroyuki could be on the pod sitting next to each other. Uh, my, I I encountered, of course, these ubiquitous Japanese ads, which had a very weird tenor compared to what I'm used to, which kind of reminded me of a little sensitization notion that because they they sort of tried to capture this this very acute emotional vibe and that was it. It was nothing else. That was like what, what it did. So it seemed to me like that this is an example of of theory maybe as as verified empirically because if, if this works it can only be through some process such as he describes. Mm. Yeah, we, we have talked about that. That I think is is true. It propaganda is it's strange. It, that that's a really big topic. I do think that the the 
the evisceration of high culture, the death of high culture, what in quotation marks, the, the death the, or the end, unrecuperated end of modernism, uh, this has extracted an enormous cost that came at a very high price for society in general. And we talk about everybody on antidepressants, the anger, school shootings, the, the level of anxiety that, that runs, cuts across all classes in the West now. It, it has to be looked at in, in relationship to, and Corey and I were talking about this the other day, just the sheer ugliness of everything. I, I, the landscape is hideous, tracked home shopping malls, cement, people are constantly cutting down trees everywhere in the name of progress again, uh, so that the trees apparently are unproductive. And, mm. uh, and I'm starting to see it in the faces of, that you see on media. I, maybe it's me and maybe it's, I'm losing it a little, but it seems I've never seen so many homely and unattractive people in public life as I do today. Uh, and, and somebody's, you know, on um, you know, some conversation with said, well, it's just because they have, you know, poison toxic souls. And I said, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. That's my takeaway, anyway. But but it, but life has become intolerably ugly. Beauty and grace and and by extension and courage and honor and well, that's so politically incorrect, John. Yeah, I know. I, I'm shaming. <laughs> I'm shaming the but ugly people out there. Uh, got hit twice with the ugly stick. No, but I mean, really, media influencers and all these faces you see constantly, um, they're either, either visibly stupid, um, like the press secretary for, for Biden, oh my God, uh, Biden himself, but all of these other influencers and figures are... Uh, it's a strange thing, and and yeah, I'm going to get attacked for saying this, but but I'm not. I'm. It's. I don't care. It's. It's just. It seems to be a reflection of something, um, some loss that is being experienced on an unconscious level, and is finding expression in in a kind of moral, physical, aesthetic, emotional ugliness. Um, uh, I don't know what more to say than that. All right, final thoughts, Varun? I think uh, what you said about um, all th this this violence and this oppressive environment that everybody's living in, that what Johan was saying before about these ads in Japan, it's this um, hypnotizing the emotion rather than the mind, which is which becomes the safety valve for capital to keep moving. Because yeah. if people would really wake up to what the world looks like at the moment, I mean, everybody's going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> nervous yeah. breakdown. No, I know. They can't right. keep keep them yeah. asleep. Yeah, um, so but that... 40 years ago, Adorno and Horkheimer, I think it was Horkheimer, said uh, the entertainment culture industry is like psychoanalysis in reverse. 
It's a profound mm. comment. Corey, mm. any last thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I was, I had my time off today by an hour and that's why I wasn't here to join at the beginning, but I had a, a guy, Fernando is over a, a photojournalist for most of his life from Chile and now he lives in Toronto and anyway, he was sharing with me a box of um, the gelatin print photographs from the 50s and 60s from the Cuban revolution that he has. So we went, we we're going through about 200 of these amazing photographs Wow. Um, just one-offs, right? Um, some from Corda, um, the photographer with Vidal for for a long time, but others just, you know, they, they actually had a lot of writing on the back. And so that was amazing. But just to go through there and, and sort of feel in touch with this time, you know, where a whole society of people were working together towards the betterment of society right towards a better world and a better right. life um you know sovereign stay out of the hands of empire like just building a better world together and my god i mean how incredible to be part of something like that i feel like we're just floating you know and sort of like this consumer society having no you know real <laughs> like where are our dreams what are our goals everything's yeah. so superficial you know, and so anyway, it was just amazing to, to be no, able to touch can, upon history like that. It's great. And you can see it when you look at those photos. I've seen similar photographs. And, I mean, you, any, you look at Havana after when the revolution took place, the streets of Havana in celebration, but you see it after in China, you see it, you, it's, it's, it's beautiful and you can see the optimism and the dreams and the hopes, but it's even beyond that, it's something else. It's something deeper and existential that takes place in humans, what they're capable of. And you're right, we float in a dead zone now and people are lonely and depressed and feel very hopeless, I think. Um, last thoughts, uh, Bihiro Yuki? Now well, let you go um, to bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well um I, I was just thinking that you know the the uh, uh the issue of uh ugliness <laughs> um uh i uh i will think that's something to do with the fact that the uh, uh capitalist uh institution any any institution uh whether it's uh, uh food industry uh politics economy whatever uh when they are dominated by capital they have to be domesticated they have to be within the framework so um there's a there's a potential for uh, uh rebellion uh to break away um any institution that's seriously pursuing what they can do um can have that kind of power so in order to uh um have it within the reach of the authority, uh, it should be compromised somehow. It should be um, 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 something. And mm. maybe it's something to do with that, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of things. I think this is a great topic actually. And, and because I obviously, as everyone knows, put a great deal of importance on art. And it's a depressing, um, it's a depressing subject right now. Yeah. It, it is. All right. On that happy note, guys, go to bed, Hiroyuki. 
<laughs> Everybody else, thank you. Thanks to Jack thank Littman. As always, thank you to the people who write in from all corners of the world. It's really fun to just shout out and say hi if you listen to the podcast. It's great. Uh, thanks, everyone. We'll see you in a, a week or so. Thank you. Thank you. Inspired.